Greetings and welcome back to another episode of Middle Class Rockstar. This is number 15. I'm sitting in my hotel room in Portland, Oregon at the Crystal Hotel. I'm actually, I'm doing several monologues up here. The, this is the hotel monologues. That's what this is. And I am in the heart of glass room. Every room in this hotel is named after a song. Mine is the Blondie song, Heart of Glass. And the lyrics are written on the walls and the picture frame. There's a beautiful painting of uh, Debbie Harry, I assume, in a glass heart-shaped canoe paddling around Oregon. Anyway, so I'm sitting up here and I'm getting, I'm knocking several of these out today. Last episode, if you missed it, if you're a full-time musician, you definitely want to check it out. It's with Allison Griggs, who's a tax accountant for musicians. She has note-for-note -note accounting, and she gives a lot of great advice. I also, just this afternoon, had the privilege of interviewing Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rock Stars, at her studio here in Portland. That was crazy. I went in, and they basically pressed record. It was it was her studio, her microphone, her engineer, and uh, it, it was highly professional. I think it's the best audio quality we'll have on a podcast yet, and that'll be the next one that comes out in two weeks. But today, my guest is Kai Turner, host of the syndicated radio program 103.5 The Fox Strictly Blues. He's had He's been on the air with 103.5 with his Strictly Blues show forever, I think. It, it's been a long time. And he's promoted a lot of blues artists, and he's one of those people that we need more of in the scene. Kai does so many great things uh, with bringing artists to town that he likes and helping get exposure for artists. And he's just one of those people in the music scene that's a treasure, and I have uh, an immense amount of respect for him. Uh, this episode was down in his basement next to his uh, cigar humidifier and his gigantic record collection in his studio where he does Strictly Blues. So, without further ado, let's get into my talk with Kai Turner. This is this is cool. Where I'm doing the interview instead of, uh, instead of in my basement, we're in your basement, and I'm glad we did. I've gotten the tour, I've seen the cigars, I've seen the massive CD collection, and uh, where you do your thing. Well, there's more in. Uh, are those dogs bothering you? No, because I can have them killed. If you <laughs> do, you have a guy for that? I got a guy. I'm from <laughs> Chicago. I got a guy for everything. So I All got right. a guy for everything. No, they're great. They're well, I, uh, yeah, welcome to the, uh, I guess this is the uh, Strictly Blues Lounge down here. I know we were talking before, uh, people call it a man cave, but to me, this ain't no man cave. You know, there's no TV down here. Right. I have one piece of Bronco's memorabilia, but that was a, that was a gift from Pat Bolin years ago when I started in radio, so... Back when they won in '97, is that one of the criteria of a man cave? Is you have to have sports stuff. I think you have to have. I well, I don't know again because I'm not admitting I have a man cave, right? But um, yeah, I think you have to have sports stuff. I think you have to have a TV. Um, you have to have a bar, right? You have to have alcohol. Uh, and I haven't had alcohol in 26 years now, so. Wow. No need for that. And uh but I do have cigars. I think a man cave would have cigars. Oh, so you so, you're doing it a little bit. A little bit, but mainly I work down. I'm either down here uh reading. This is really what it's set up for. I've got light coming in. Uh, I've got my reading lamp and and a uh, bunch of different kinds of books that I like to read. And then CDs. Yeah, lots lots and lots of CDs and uh there's still some in well, that was rude. Was that? Oh, no, that, that's you. Okay. Who is it? If it's important, you know, you put them on the line. Oh, yeah. All the 877 numbers are important. Yeah. They, they talk to them right away. <laughs> I do apologize. and No, all good. I will, when I do my Yelp review of whoever this is calling, I will note that they were interrupting my interview. <laughs> and I still have some in case. I moved into this new house a few years ago, but 
you know how it is. You never quite unpack everything. But I've right. got all most of the blue stuff is out, and the stuff that I use, and uh, I try to keep it relatively well organized. But yeah, there's probably eight or nine thousand CDs up on the on the shelves around here. I think this is. I mean, aside from and then the records, you know, aside from Twist and Shout, I think this is the most CDs I've ever seen in one place. I'm not allowed in Twist and Shout unaccompanied. Uh, yeah, so, you are know, you that's... are you one of those people who's given like an allowance, like you got 25 bucks? Yeah, my wife used to uh, regulate that quite uh, sternly. Yeah, yeah, it would. Yeah, it would. It would get bad. So <laughs> it would get bad. Even I mean, even though. Uh, being in radio, uh, the, the record labels, the artists, a lot of times, they'll just send you their work. They'll send you the CDs. And so we're not technically buying them. We don't technically own them either. Uh, there's a payola law that says we're not, as radio people, we're not necessarily allowed to take ownership of these CDs. So we're essentially stewards on behalf of the artists and the record labels. And you'll see on a lot of them, it'll say for promotional use only, it'll be a stamp on there of some kind. Yeah. And that basically means that the record company is retaining ownership of the CD. However, they're letting me use it for the purposes of broadcasting them perhaps. So you couldn't sell it back to the, to the CD store. No, I think sleazier DJs would have done that in the past where they would go and, take all their CDs and try and get two bucks a piece for them, you know, yeah. down, a, down a twist and shout yeah. or something. Yeah. You know, after a year, you might have a, a couple hundred, you know, if, if you're getting your feet wet. And uh, so that's what, four or five hundred bucks a year if you unload all of them. But right. uh, I am, I wouldn't say I'm a pack rat, but I, I believe that uh, every artist has potential. Every artist who is willing to go through the effort to, write and record and try to distribute their work uh, has value in some way. Yeah. Um, the fact that I don't necessarily see it when they want me to doesn't mean it's not there. Right. Uh, so I do hang on to things because I will get CDs from people and I'll be like, this guy's really good. And then I'll go back and I'll be like, wow, I've got four other CDs <laughs> from this guy that they never resonated with me. Uh, what did I miss? You know, what, what was it that I'm hearing now that I wasn't hearing then? And so for me, it's important to be able to maintain a lineage for the analysis of things, you know, because right. I, I do try to feature the, what's best about the people that I play. Do you keep all of the CDs, 100% of them that are sent to you? Yes, except for duplicates. Okay. Uh, duplicates, I either... Uh, give away to people, give away to listeners. Sometimes we'll do an on-air thing for listeners. Uh, that's kind of a pain these days because people have to come down to the radio station to get them or we have to send it in the mail. Yeah. And like the show reaches up to, uh, you know, Cheyenne and Laramie these days. And so uh, nobody's driving down from Laramie to, to pick up a Jimi Hendrix scene. CD so right and then we send it and then they say they never got it and it's just like you know uh, so I usually will keep the duplicates around and people like you when you come visit the the house or you know a little little parting gift for you when yeah you, when you leave yeah, yeah. Awesome. but if you're not a blues fan before you come into my house you will be by the time you leave I don't care who you are right yeah you're gonna awesome. be yeah, that's that's been my whole life you know for the last 30 years is have you heard this and uh, that's, yeah. I continue to do that for some reason. So wh how did this all get started? You grew up in Chicago? Yeah, I spent my formative years in uh, Chicago. I sort of had, you know, your typical abnormal, tumultuous childhood. I was born in Kingston, Jamaica. And uh, my father worked in uh, international business at the time. My mother was from Germany. And so we bounced around to every little rat hole. Uh, place in the world at the time, Kingston, Jamaica, uh, was coming out of uh, coming out from under the crown, as they say. They were under British rule. They were coming into self-rule, and, and my dad was involved with orchestrating some of that. Uh, and then uh, we went from there to like Beirut, you know, <laughs> where the same thing was happening. Yeah. And uh, until this guy Yasser Arafat came in and started running the country out of his checkbook and. Uh, uh, but at that time, Beirut was a beautiful place. It was uh, just a Mediterranean paradise. You'd, 
You'd ski in the morning in the mountains, and then you'd be on the beach in the afternoon. It was gorgeous. Wow. Um, but then all hell broke loose over there, and uh, hasn't gotten much better. They destroyed a beautiful, beautiful place, and uh, and we bounced around. And then I think by the time I was uh, uh, old enough to know what was going on, probably. 13 years old we we landed in chicago finally and then huh. that was it he was like we're, we're staying here and uh very very quickly thereafter i uh started hearing music you know music started really resonating with me and uh, uh blues in in particular so you know I, were you playing it at all or just listening no you know i played a trumpet and uh we did the whole pachelbel cannon thing and and in high school, you know, right, right, <laughs> and uh, and all of that stuff, and and we did some marching band and and some of that, um, and uh, yeah, I did discover uh, Louis Armstrong's Tin Roof Blues, and started teaching myself how to play that, and then I uh, like Herb Alpert, right? I started getting hip to Herb Alpert, um, yeah, Rise, it was his his big hit, or Al Hurt, you know, with the Green Hornet, you know, and it's. If you want to learn your 36 notes, that's a good tune to to do from Al Hurt. And uh, those were all off of records. And I st started getting really good at sort of playing that back on the horn. Uh, and they uh, they completely frowned on it, you know, in, uh, in sort of the band environment. They were like, you know, what are you doing? That's not how you play a trumpet. That's not how you blow your horn, you know. That's... I was like, hey, man, these guys are where it's at. I mean, well, with your cheeks puffed out, you mean? Yeah, oh, yeah. They hated that. Yeah, yeah. You, you start blowing like Louis, you know, and it, it, like Louis Armstrong. And they're like, oh, no, don't don't be doing that. No, don't. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, man, that's how it's done. <laughs> that's yeah. how it's done. I said, I can't name a single classical trumpet player that I could care about, but I've already rattled off four or five of these cats that I want to emulate. Uh, and it just created tension. So that's when I started, you know, pursuing music on my own. And uh, uh, I gravitated, of course, toward that, and then and then toward uh, blues as well. Blues really resonated with me. And in Chicago at that time, on the weekends, there were, you know, but WBEZ uh, uh, was a station there in Chicago, and they would do, you know, blues until sunrise. I mean, it was literally like a five-hour. You'd listen to it all night, you know. And as far as he was concerned, anything after 1965 was garbage. You know, and so it was all that good old stuff, and I just ate it up. And then I realized this is all coming from Chicago. I live by Chicago. I need yeah. to go see this, you know. And uh, wide-eyed and uh, naive, I just, you know, 15 years old, take the train down to the city and s go down to the south side, say, can I come in and see some blues? And they're like, what are you doing here, kid? <laughs> you better get in here, you know. Yeah. And uh I just uh, I just loved it. I loved the people. I felt the people were just very warm, genuine people, uh, and and I loved the music that they were doing. I mean, it was pure pure passion. I, I wanted to be a part of that. And so, who was the first live band that you saw in Chicago where you went, "Wow, what on earth is that? I love that." Um, I would say the the first one I actually saw was Sunnyland Slim in Chicago. He was a blues piano player, and he would play in this little joint on, on Belmont, you know, on Sunday nights, you know. There's a residency. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I think the first band that I really saw, that just I was like, holy moly, what is this? It was when I saw James Cotton, and uh, James would play all over town. And in particular, back then there was a place called Biddy Mulligans, and I think it's still there. It's it was uh, on the north side of the city. And uh, it was uh, by Wrigley Field. Mm. And so basically, before an afternoon game, people would go get primed up for the game. And they would have a band in there. And people would be drinking and, and partying. And then the whole thing would just basically shut down while everyone goes to the game. And then they pick it up again afterwards. And I remember sitting in there going, why'd they stop? You know, <laughs> It's like, oh, everyone's going to the game. I go, I don't want to go to the game. I want to see these guys. And like, oh, they'll play after the game. You know, it's like, oh, man, I got to wait. Yeah, but uh, hearing him do that stuff and, and seeing that live, and, and then, you know, uh, I was fortunate at that time, people like Coco Taylor and Lonnie Brooks were uh, playing all over Chicago, and particularly on the north side, uh, they didn't, they wouldn't know a valid ID if you showed it to them, you know, so you could, if you act like you needed to be there, they're like, yeah, sure, you know. And what, what time was this, what year-ish? <sighs> 
I'm going to say this is around 1985, 87, okay. probably 87. Gotcha. Sometime around then, 86, 87. So by by this time, I'm I'm pushing 16, 17 years old, so I'm becoming more mobile. You know, I've got a little car I can drive around, and uh, so it's uh, I'm I'm kind of getting more acclimated with where I could go see these things. And they had a lot of, of course, they had the Blues Festival in Chicago where everybody could go to back then. Right. And uh, you can still go to it. Uh, and that was a big free event. You know, you could spend three days there and just eat it all up, which I did. So then what happened after after high school? I went to college. Uh, I didn't think much of it. I ended up going to school uh, uh, out in uh, Fort Collins, uh, out at CSU there. Okay, so that was when that's when you first came out to Colorado, uh-huh. and what attracted you uh, out to CSU? My grandparents had retired here in the early '80s, so I knew Colorado. Okay, and uh, had spent time, uh, particularly down in Colorado Springs. I'd never been to Fort Collins, uh, but I knew the Springs well, and and uh, I knew Colorado well, and I had a chance to come to school out here, and I figured it was it would it would be nice. I figured it was it was just far enough from home to not be obvious about the fact that you wanted to leave home. You know, <laughs> but uh, it was, yeah, I just sort of dove into it. I thought, well, that, that would be a good place to go. You studied philosophy. I ended up studying philosophy, yeah. Um, I didn't go in with that intention. I went in with, you know, nose to the grindstone business degree uh, in mind. And uh, they just, they, I was in the business school. I got accepted into the business program as a, as a freshman, which was, which was good. Normally, you've got to work your way into it back then. And uh, I had run like a small mail order company in high school. And, you know, I was had become pretty self-sufficient. I kind of knew how a business kind of worked already uh, by the time I got there. Uh, uh, but the more I studied it and the more I engaged with it, I, I didn't really feel a connection to it. I, I didn't uh, – there was no spark, really. For me, and I and I didn't it really wasn't something that where I told myself I said, oh yeah, this is, I'm you know this I'm going to make this work. I mean I'm into this. Um, took a philosophy course as an elective, and you know all of a sudden the, the brain started firing, and and uh, I said well, I need to take another one of these and see where that goes. And uh, by the time I was done, I had a degree in philosophy. <laughs> nice. And I, as you said, right when I came in, you studied philosophy in college, and you're still trying to figure it out. I am, and I think if you do it right, that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't, uh, I don't really trust the uh, so-called experts. You know, it's uh, we're trained to not trust the experts, right? I mean, this is uh, our job as a philosopher is to is to truly dissect what they call the epistemology of things. How do you know that you know? And uh, that can become a very complicated question or a very straightforward question, depending on how you approach things. And right. So, uh, you know, we're always, that's part of it. I think that's the magic of it, is that it teaches your your mind to always be asking how, you know, how do we know? And uh, is this actually true? How, how do we know that this is true? And And continue sort of challenging our concepts of how we see the world. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I continue to do that today. I, I think it helps me uh, with what I do in music. Uh, certainly, I take a very analytical approach to how I uh, support blues music, and uh, I, it helps me in in my general career and my ability to work for a living as well. Because it it allows me to look at situations and try to determine how how can we come up with a solution for certain things. Yeah, and uh, try and get it right the first time. And so, as you're in college, are you still doing? Are you going out to clubs in college? Are there any clubs? You know what happened up there in in college? uh, A couple weird things happened. Uh, One, you know, one of them was the result of my partying lifestyle at that point. Which, at CSU at that time in the late '80s, that was certainly an option for you. Uh, You know, that was certainly something that. They were, it was hopping, you know. I mean, the the breweries were just getting started, you know, Odell's and all of, I mean, the beer was flowing everywhere, everywhere. And so it wasn't that hard to find a party back then. And uh, I we found a place, we ended up living down in Old Town, 
and in an, in like an abandoned warehouse loft. And it was around the corner from a place called Linden's, which was a blues bar. And uh, they would call the cops on us because our parties would get so big. And so we, we kind of came up to an, with an agreement. I said, hey, you're doing blues. All I want to do is go see blues. And so we kind of worked it out, and, and we became friends. And so I did have access to it there. And then um, I was – I had stumbled across the, uh, the campus radio station uh, while just sort of flipping through the dial one time. And there was a guy who was doing a blues show, and I thought it was good. Um, he was playing some Stevie Ray Vaughan, which I was a huge – still am a huge Stevie Ray fan. You know, skipped a lot of – classes in high school to go make sure I could get my Stevie Ray tickets, you know. So I'm yeah. I'm very lucky that I was able to <laughs> I don't See remember a, I don't remember an inch of calculus, but I, I remember every Stevie Ray Vaughan concert I went to in high school. So Wow. Uh I for me I know what was more valuable. <laughs> and uh I think uh, you know at that time uh I felt that I was I was thinking of it in terms of you know what would what would Stevie do right and uh, and you know WWSD in my brain and I would think that if Stevie would want you to say that you know this was actually a buddy guy song that you just played and uh, the DJ was just going on about how awesome Stevie was and in my head I was thinking wait a minute Stevie was awesome but. Buddy was is awesome too, and Buddy's still here, right? I mean, it's in 1990. Buddy was still around, and yeah. so I was like, "This is a college; they should know better." You know, <laughs> like I was, if I was listening to some syndicated show in Chicago, I'd be like, "Yeah, whatever." But you know, I was like, "This is a college; it's like you're supposed to know these things here." And uh, I didn't think anything of it, and I think uh, maybe a month or so later, I just happened to be at the student union and the station at that time was sort of tucked way in the back. It was, you weren't going to find it on purpose. And, uh, uh, I just went in there and I just let them have it. You know, I was like, who do you people think you are? <laughs> and then they gave you the job. Well, they said, who are you? And, uh, I was like, okay. In my mind, I thought, well, now I'm in trouble, right? Cause now they're asking for my name. Right. And I figured, well, I'm going to go down swinging. You know, I don't, okay. You want to know, <laughs> I said, hey, my name's Kai Turner, and, you know, this is my dorm room, and, you know, whatever. And then, uh, yeah, a week or two later, I got a call from Bob Terrell, who was the music director, and he said, uh, Kai, what do you think about coming down and learning how to run a soundboard? And I was like, what the hell do I want to do that for? He's like, I think you'd be all right on the, on the, you know, let's come on down and see what you think. You yeah. Know? And so... <laughs> And that's and then uh, that was how that started. Yeah, and uh, it just sort of happened that way. And there were a couple other guys doing uh, blue shows. We kind of had a rotation because it's student run. Well, it wasn't student run at that time, but it was a public radio thing. They had people coming in doing this and that. But uh, whenever somebody couldn't make it, I was available. You know, because I I ended up they had a library about the size of this room in in the back of the building. And they literally had forty or fifty thousand records in this thing. I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, like instead of like where we have a couch here, it would just be rows of shelving, right, going back and forth perpendicular to the walls of the room, right. Yeah. So it almost looked like a comb in there, and then the shelves in there packed with records. And they had just recently started playing what they what they call triple A music at that time, which was kind of what we would call KBCO now yeah. you know that was really started by john hayes up at ktcl in the in the 80s and 90s um but then bco picked up on it and so on and so forth but anyway uh that style and uh the community prior to that they had done a lot of classical music in, in yeah. their in their radio station but because they were on the sort of distribution list for record labels they sent them stuff so they had records there from like original chess releases because that station had been on the air since the 1940s. And so they had like original chess releases, original stacks releases. Wow. Untouched. Untouched. And there were like, there Sit were no the windows chrome. in this joint. So I would go in on a Friday night. I would literally come out on a Sunday morning. And I would have no idea. I mean, I would just go in there and listen to these records and just lose 
total track of time. I went, you know, just go. I'm like, oh my god, look, oh, oh, look at this guy. You know, it's like, oh, you know, wow. and it's you know, oh, John Lee Hooker, free beer and chicken. Who knew? You know, and uh, and then you just, I would just eat it up, and then I wanted to, I would want to translate that onto the the air, uh, on, onto what I was doing. And uh, as other people started coming in to do their shifts, listeners would call and say, "Where's Kai?" And so yeah. I think there was some tension there. Um, but uh, the programming director said, Kai, you know, if you want this, you can have it, but you need to do it every week. And I said, okay. And then that's just, I did it every week, no matter what, I was in there. You know, it was You got live, the job. And, yeah. yeah. And, and you were doing it completely live at that point. Yeah. You'd had oh, to have yeah. the turntable ready and everything. Oh, yeah. We had two turntables. <laughs> we had a DAT machine. Back then, we still had a tape player in the studio. We had a couple CD players. They would break all the time. Now, you par- know. pardon my youth. I don't know what a DAP machine is. A, a digital tape player. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so there are these little tapes, and um, they were, you you would, it was sort of a way, I think, for the analog world to try to retain, you know, some uh, presence in the, in the industry. Right. But you could get two hours on them, and so they were good for doing interviews, and you could multi-track on them, too, so... Um, so they would capture the digital signal onto the tape, yeah. And then you had different things, and it was considered high quality. And you know, but you know, here we are, you know, twenty, thirty years later, and, and we're still playing the CDs at least, and, and of course we're still playing the records. So that's what I stick with. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I, I avoid the downloads. I don't. I I mean, I just they just don't have the same feel for me. And well, so let's jump into that a little bit. Um, if, if we're looking at ahead a few years now till now, right? Yeah. And and uh, we are all using Spotify and Apple Music and uh, Amazon Music. What's what's your take on all that? I, I think the streaming has become a good revenue source for the artists. Uh, you know, better than the old royalty program because people just aren't buying full albums anymore right uh, and i don't have a, a real issue with that um uh, i don't see that as necessarily a um a bad thing for the for the music industry i think if we go back in time you know the whole idea of an album the term album comes from the fact that you would buy a collection of 78s that would be in a book you would have four or five uh 78 records that represented singles right and each 78 two and a half minutes on each side or so and an artist would begin to build a repertoire and you'd say oh, i want a few of these you'd buy an album of those 78s uh and then they started doing 45s and so the whole industry was built on the selling of of singles now somebody would go into chess records in the morning they would record a track bo Dilly or somebody would record a track uh the guys at Chess Records, they they do a test press of a 45. They'd run it down the street to the radio station. Radio station would play it, and if they got calls, they made sure they had 50 copies down at the record store, a Jazz Mart or something. Yeah. And that's how they sold the stuff, and that's how the artists got their draw. And then as the technology changed, now we've got 33 and a third, and now we have to, they actually had to fill that material, you know. And so the industry really got used to having. Um, having it both ways and that is you know sell people on the single but force them to buy the whole record right um and so now we've with downloads i think that's given people more access to the artists which i ultimately think is a good thing uh it, I, it hurts record companies but i don't know if it's necessarily true that record companies have invested as much in the artists as they claim they have i think they're there to make money they're venture capitalists the good ones are still here. Uh, Alligator Records is, is 45 years old now. Right. They're artist-centric. Certainly they support the artist. Certainly they're somebody that, as an artist, you would want to team up with. Uh, yeah. And they will help you with that uh, mechanical process of distributing your work, of publishing your work, and of helping you sell it through uh, BMI and, and all of those things. Uh, and in, re- in return, they, they get some compensation for that. But you also benefit as an artist because you get visibility, you get credibility, and so on and so forth. Uh, having to do it now through streaming certainly gets the artist's music out there. I don't know if people have as close a relationship with the artist that they would have had. Uh, but I think ultimately 
there are so many opportunities for artists to establish that relationship outside of the traditional way of having to rely on um, the control of a record company to do that, that they have social media now, um, they can tour, they can drive it through their own different types of mediums. Yeah. And uh, streaming is a good way for the consumer to really uh, take it all in without having to commit to any of it right now. And so I think we see the revenue increase in streaming for artists versus that off a of direct download, for instance, which is really either controlled by Apple or a couple other people now. I mean, 30% of 99 cents is still a big chunk. Yeah. And, uh, and then, of course, you have your own expenses, right? And then if you're dealing with publishing, then that gets trimmed down some more. And, and so you've got to move a lot to, in order for that to, to work, which means as an artist, you still have to get people to know who you are, right? Uh, and so I don't think people like me are going to go anywhere because uh, terrestrial radio is still something that people can access freely, no right. contract, no anything. Uh, right. and, it's, and it's there for you at, at any time. And so it's, we'll drive you to streaming. I have a streaming channel, uh, Strictly Blues channel too, uh, through iHeart. I think it's good. I've, I've built it myself. Uh, with all of my own music, and I think it drives a lot of artists, but I still believe that the relationship that gets created between the listener and the artist happens when they listen to it uh, in the context of a radio program yeah, rather than streaming. Rather than streaming. streaming kind of fills the dead air, I right. think, but it, it doesn't necessarily drive that relationship with the artist. Sure. When you can say something about the artist before or after the song or yeah. whatever as the DJ and kind of. Yeah. Know. And I can set the tone for how that relationship's going to go. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I can let people know what's going on in their lives personally, how, how the artist responds. I can interview the artist. I can uh, bring them in to our world in, in radio. You know, radio tends to still be one-on-one. Right, which I, I think corporate radio drastically overlooks that relationship. But radio is always best when it's one-to-one. -one. And yeah. that is each listener feels like you're speaking to them directly. And that's how you should be right. approaching it. You know, the old fireside chats and things, those were, they were sitting around a radio. Right? There, there's that intimacy that's there when, when you do radio. And I think it's... To those of us that keep trying to do it, I think it's it's important that we keep that in mind, that each relationship is important, that we're talking to each person individually when we're out there. We're, yeah. not, we're not out there to sort of, uh, you know, shotgun a message out. I mean, we may have a message like, go see this guy, but we're telling you that one-on-one. -on -one. We're telling each person individually and trying to set up that relationship with each person between me, the music, and the artist and uh, trying to tie all of that together. And I think that's what helps keep it going. That's a, that's a really interesting take. And I, and I know I, you know, I'll be the first to confess, I'm not, I, I used to be listening to radio stations in the car all the time. And now, it, I mean, I'll take a CD into the car. Yeah. But uh, a lot of times, uh, it's something I want to listen to or I get an idea and I have this sort of a mood and, I, and I'll look it up and stream it instantly. But you're right, it's it's not the same connection with the artist and I still like it on the radio yeah, station a little bit. You know, the magic happens is as a radio programmer is when I anticipate that mood, right? Yeah. Or I can set that mood, right? I'm a big fan of uh, the of the segue. So to me, it's just as important how you transition from one song to the next as it is how you introduce the song. So you know, corporate radio, they always taught us, uh, we're all playing the same Skinner tune. So that doesn't matter. It's what's in between the records, you know. How you know how good are your dick jokes in between the records, or right. you know, uh, uh, you know how how casually can you migrate this, or you know how how rapid fire can you get all of this stuff out? People want to hear the weather before they hear the who, you know, and it's like, okay, fine, uh, but it, if you're if you're pulling somebody in and then you just do a horrible transition. The, the mood is broken, right? The magic's right. gone. And now you've got to rebuild that. Yeah. That might take you an hour. Considering that your average listener flips every 15 minutes or so, it's not going to happen. Wow. You know? So we have a concept called time spent listening in, in radio, and they try to measure that. And uh, with what I do in blues, those numbers are really high. And so that tells me 
that I'm doing a, a relatively good job of keeping those people uh, engaged with yeah. how the music is flowing. Um, and, and I think that's what helps bring authenticity to the music as a whole. Yeah. That, that gives it a lot of credibility. Well, I'll say about streaming too. Uh, I, I think a lot of times when I'm in the car, I have trouble knowing what to listen to because I can choose. Yes. Um, you know, I, well, what, what do I want to listen? I, I, I don't necessarily know what I want to listen to all the time. Right. If I'm driving to work, uh, and, and I sort of, I sort of need someone to tell me what I want to listen to yeah. sometimes. Uh, and well, the fact that I can flip, flip and change songs if I don't like it, yeah. maybe takes away from it a little bit. It does. Um, but then again, that's, that's how it works. You yeah. know, I mean, I think as an artist, it's important that you write music that, that you believe in, that, uh, you can be honest with because that's, that's your voice. That's what, that's what you have to offer people. Yeah. Um, and you can be disingenuous and poppy and, and maybe hook a few people here or there, but that's, you're not going to get longevity out of that. Very few people are. I mean, there's very few artists that have truly made a career out of doing that. Yeah. And the chances that you're going to be one of them are very slim. Yeah. You know, so stick, stick to what's in you, stick to what's honest. And then, you know, radio, we'll find it eventually, you know. Uh, but yeah, I remember in my early days, you know, when I started collecting my own CDs and I remember I'd have maybe 40 CDs on a shelf in my closet, you know, and this is what I had to do my radio show with, you know. And I would be like, man, you know, if only I had more stuff to pick from, I would be able to do a good show, you know. And so now here I sit with thousands of CDs and I still go, I have no idea what to what to do, you know, and so it's it's always going to be that that challenge. And so I think you need to, uh, you know, being able to sort of set that tone and and uh, help people move. Like when I program a show, I have that in mind that we're going to start a certain way and we're going to go in a certain direction and, and hopefully people hang on for the ride. Yeah. Uh, and even on the streaming channel where I'm loading twenty five hundred songs a week. I still go through that every week before we finalize the upload, and I make sure that I like how one song is going to the other. Yeah, you know, and and that is arduous work, but ultimately it pays off when you're listening to the stream, and you like the next song that comes on. You right. Know? If you're sitting there going, "Gosh, I wouldn't have done that," well, I do the same thing. So let me know. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. Let me know, and I'll go. Yeah, you know, that was that probably didn't work so well. Sure. You know? uh, because that's kind of what keeps it going for me is yeah. is uh, going from one one piece of it to the next. Because you always experience things in the present, right? Right. And, and so the, when that song ends, then that presence ends, and now we begin a new presence. It's got to transition well. Yeah, I think so. Wow. Uh, so you graduated, backing up a little bit, graduated college in the early 90s. Uh, Mid-90s. Mid-90s. By the time I got out. Yeah. And uh, as long as I've known you, you've been on strictly blues so yeah. fill us in in what happened in between oh well desperation for the most part i mean i i uh i left college with a degree in philosophy and i knew i knew that that probably was not a wise move uh not a whole lot of even back then they would it would be in the newspaper you would look for jobs you know they had a classified never once did i see a job philosopher wanted you know we'll pay big money for you know, good philosophers. Thinker. Yeah. yeah, yeah, critical thinkers needed. <laughs> <laughs> Great, I'm in. And uh, no, no, there's there's never been a demand for that. I mean, people say they want that, but when it comes down to it, no. And so I worked a lot, and I said, well, I'm a music guy. I want to do music, you know, and I would do uh, A&R work at a couple record companies that I would do A&R work for, which is basically free, right? an A&R guy is an artist in repertoire and they were basically talent scouts for record labels. So we were the guys that would try to, you know, bring somebody to the record company and say, this, you need to sign these guys, you know? Yeah. And then, so you were basically in the business of having your boss say no to you all day. And uh, if they said yes to you, then it was your baby. Then you came on board and then you oversaw the production. You oversaw the cultivation of the act. You got a percentage of that. And if you had signed Pearl Jam, you'd be a very wealthy man, right? right? Uh, and that's so. But you spent most of your time playing pool, and not getting paid, 
right? That's that's what A&R did. Uh, that was fine with me. And uh, I would write. Um, I would do radio. Um, well, so finding these artists as an A&R guy, are you hunting for one label or are you pitching an artist you like to multiple? Yeah, labels? it was it was a little of both. Uh, I was I was working with a label called Underground Music Store at that time, and they were out of New York. Uh, but then I was also working with A uh, and M Records at the time. Oh, no kidding! And what was interesting at that time was this was when uh, Kenny Wayne Shepherd was coming up, Johnny Lang was coming up. So and and they sold. I mean, they were hits. So all these record companies, they're like, get us a blonde haired blue eyed a blues guitar player. It's, it's uh, ASAP. You know, <laughs> and who who are the people who can find these guys? You know, and like, yeah. oh well, Kai out there, he does this. Oh, get this, get Kai, and have him go. You know, find us somebody. You know, and uh, you know they were they were just chomping at the bit to to try and you know exploit the next innocent uh, guitar player that they could get. Who'd you find for him? Uh, nobody. Uh, they said <laughs> no to everybody. Uh, yeah. There was a great kid, Benoit. Up there at the time, I really worked hard to try and, and get him out there. Um, he had a band called Benoit and the Blue Balls, and I, I think he's still playing. And a great young man, great talent. Um, and, you know, I think that's the sad story of not just, you know, blues, but music is, you know, for every Johnny Lang or Kenny Wayne Shepherd uh, or, you know, Joe Bonamassa or any of these other, you know, there's some kid in his garage whooping your ass right now. Who will never get the time of day from these people because some idiot's just sitting there thinking he can't sell it, yeah, you know, and uh, so and that that was part of it at the time. So uh, I did that, um, and then I was also I I kind of got uh, known as a personality there, and so they would have me do they would have me host certain things, um, they would have me host sort of a Thursday night concert and in old town and things like that just as an MC and things like that and uh yeah one of the guys from uh at that time it was J-Core broadcasting was there and he said you're Kai Turner I said yeah he's like well, come on down to Denver one day and uh, and uh we'll show you around so okay so I ended up in Denver I called up I said hey this is Kai Turner I was told when I'm in Denver to give you guys a call and you'd give me a tour or something and uh I said okay yeah, Kai, come on down. You know, a guy named Bo Bennett met me there. He was the music director for the Fox. He gave me a tour of the station. He's like, what do you think? I go, hey, this is pretty cool, you know. Yeah. Like, back then, it was everything was live, and it was sort of, as you'd imagine, a madhouse. And so I figured this would be perfect for me, you know. <laughs> yeah. I like this. Yeah. And, you know, Shark, you know, he'd have his ashtray right on the middle of the soundboard in there. And, and I was like, yeah, I can hang with these guys. They're my kind of people. Yeah. And, uh He's like, all right. So, uh, what do you, you know, what do you think of the station? I said, well, I, I like the station, man. It's, it's cool stuff you got here. Thanks for showing to me. He's like, all right. Well, let's go in my office and talk a little bit. I was like, okay. And uh, we started talking. He's like, all right. So you'll you'll do your, you know, you'll start Sunday night. Uh, you'll do this, this, and this, and you'll do your show. And then we need to do some other things. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about, though? And he's like, well, your your show. I go, what show? He's like, your blue show. He's like, strictly blues? He's like, yeah, strictly blues. I'm like, I had no idea I was there for a job interview. Yeah. So yeah. I just I thought I You're was just getting, checking it out. I thought I was getting a tour, you know. Uh and uh, you know, we kind of discussed some things right off the bat because we were talking and I was kind of cocky with him, you know. I mean, I I don't think I would have behaved that way if I known I was in a job interview. You Maybe know? it helped you out. It did. Uh, you know, because he was like, Well, here's you know, we're a classic rock station. We want you to play Zeppelin and Stones. And then I said, I, you know what, Bo? I said, I would never play that on, on, a, on my blue show. I'd never, I would never play them on my blue yeah. show. And he goes, what, 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 what do you mean? I go, listen, uh, those guys are played on the radio all the time, all the time. And not once does the DJ come on and say, hey, you know, the Rolling Stones took their name from a Muddy Waters song. Or, you know, half of Led Zeppelin's songs were written by a guy named Willie Dixon, you know. Uh, and here's that guy, you know. Or here's the Howlin' Wolf, you know. He's the guy that scared the hell out of the Beatles when they first showed up in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, none of those 
people say anything. I said, you're giving me three hours at that time. I said, you're giving me three hours on a Sunday night compared to 24-7 the rest of the week that you guys have. And I'm going to play the Stones? No. So I'll play the Holland Wolf. And I'll play Muddy. And I'll say, hey, this is where these guys came from. Right. He said, all right, well, we'll try it your way. You know, you do you do it your way. And uh, I think uh, right off the bat, we hit number one in the in the weekend ratings, you know. And like, ah, oh, it's just a fluke, you know. What year was this? This was 96. 96, okay. We hit number one. on the, First time we'd hit number one in any time slot. Even wow. the morning show had never hit a number one because they were still getting beat out by KOA and some other stuff, even though. Uh, you know, uh, Lewis and Floorwax owned the world at that time. I mean, they were right. they were gods. And you know, here I am, you know, green behind the ears, and I've got my little blue show, and I'm you know I'm riding the coattails of these guys. You know? Yeah. So, um, and the, and the, they were great throughout my whole career. I mean, they uh, provided so many wonderful opportunities. But you know, when I first came in there, um, you know, I was the weekend guy. They weren't going to talk to me, and uh, and I really you know wasn't too hip to what they were doing i was just like i know blues and that's what i'm doing here and that's what i'm going to do uh and then we have the ratings are uh seasonal so you have a, a spring ratings book uh summer ratings book winter ratings book, so on and so forth uh and we did really well and they said ah it's just because it's a new show it's a fluke okay and then it happened again and then it happened again you know um and then they never told me what to do after that they never once tried to tell me what to do after that and wow. so I got very lucky from the beginning. I think maybe if it had gone the other way and the ratings just weren't, you know, didn't meet their expectations or whatever. Right. You know, maybe they would have come back and tried to fiddle. Time to with play what some I Rolling was, Stones. Uh, yeah. They'd say, yeah. listen, if you want to keep your job, you're going to play the Stones because your ratings are shit. You know, right. and it's like, okay, well, I guess if I want to keep doing it, I'll, maybe I'll do it. I don't know. But I was never put in that position. And... uh you know, here we are, 96 and 2019. I, I, they, they never once told me what to play. Wow. Even, even after 9-11, they, didn't, they never once came to me and say, don't play Jet Airliner. You know, I mean, that's never once they ever do that. So I've, I've been very fortunate that I've been able to, and other DJs, I mean, I know some of them, you know, uh, really would have liked to have had that kind of freedom in their careers because right. so much of it is, is regulated by, um, uh, playlists that are put together by consultants. Right. You know, they have to play these songs in this order and so on and so forth. You can tell when you listen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I used to, when I was a kid, I used to think I was a genius because I would know, you know, back then you, we would tape the radio, right? So you put your little cassette in your cassette player and you turn on the radio and you could record the radio. And uh, you would try to catch your favorite songs and make your own mixtapes off the radios, you know? And I used to think I was a genius because I always knew when the Jay Giles band song was going to come on or when this. No, I'm not a genius. They were in rotation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, yeah. Played them, they played them once every 90 minutes, you know. And, right. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I've never had to subscribe to that, you know. And, you know, those a, a lot of times back when it was live, they one guy would be finishing his shift and here I am wheeling a crate of records and CDs in there to – to do my show and uh it was sort of that free-spirited style and, and i still try to try to keep that element in it i mean i still do it at, as a live show i mean you know once we hit once we hit go then it's go you know and, and the show is going to end up however it ends up yeah and uh, because i think that live feel is important i think you need to have that that uh, improvisational element to it that says you know i wasn't going to do this but here we go yeah. And uh, and live in the moment, uh, you know, let the music uh, determine the direction that you're headed yeah. for, for that time period. And, you know, yeah, sometimes you're rocking and you go Stevie Ray. And then sometimes you find yourself in like a 10 minute Donny Hathaway funk. And that's just the music telling me what to do, you know. And uh, I try to listen very closely to what it's saying. Yeah. Wow. So you've been, you've been on the air there for, what is that, 23 years? Yeah, I count, you know, I started in 91, if, if I count college. And uh, when I came on the air in uh, on the Fox, I mean, that was big time radio. I mean, we're a top yeah. 25 market. And the Fox has always been a flagship station for the, 
classic rock model around the country. There are other Fox stations, but they're based off of our model here. So wow. Denver has always been that trendsetter for that. Um, and so I've been a part of that for a long time, too. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I never thought it would last. It's week to week for me. It's always yeah. been, you know, this might be my last show this week. Yeah. And, and that's how I've always approached it. You know, I've been fired twice, so. <laughs> fired and rehired. <laughs> yeah. So, and and each time I, I felt like, okay, that last show that I left on the table, I said that was that was a good thing to, to leave there. Yeah. I left it. I left it as good as I could leave it. And then I was fortunate enough to be able to come back and, and keep doing it. Wow. And so now I don't worry about that as much. And now I almost anticipate when I'm going to be fired again. And, uh, you know, over over time, I've just been able to accumulate uh, enough ownership over what I do to where I, I don't worry about it as much anymore. Yeah. And so you've done, you've done a lot of other things, too. I know when you're passionate about an artist and, um, you know, that you'll you'll put them up, you'll feed them. Uh, well, we do whatever we can. Yeah, yeah, we we do whatever we can. I mean, this is this is hard work. Uh, blues is hard work, and uh, yeah, the Rolling Stones uh, fly around in a private jet. But you know, Jimmy Rogers spent most of his career with his arm hanging out a van window, and uh, he's one of the guys who invented it. Right? He was in Muddy's original band. Yeah, uh, and these are guys that would come down and play. You know, it always amazed me that like people will pay. I don't even know what people pay anymore for a concert ticket, right? But people pay a hundred bucks to go see Eric Clapton or something like that. Right. And then you could have you could have seen Jimmy Rogers for five bucks at the door, you know. And these guys are out there, right? I mean, there's guys out there that are just are phenomenal musicians, and you you see them for pennies on a dollar. Yeah. You know, and the same people who who complain about. Uh, Ticketmaster's gouging me, and the tickets at Red Rocks are too expensive. Nothing's stopping you from going to see Nick Moss when he comes to town. Right. Nick Moss will whoop your ass all over the floor, and, and it'll cost you ten tavern. bucks. Yeah. And he'll be grateful for it. He'll shake your hand after the show. Yeah. Nobody playing Red Rocks is going to come out and shake your hand after the show. Right. You're going to give them 150 bucks, and they're going to leave. Yeah. You know, but we don't do it that way in the blues, and so. You know, blues is is uh, it's hard work. You you think about you know what what people do for a living, and you know I've maintained a day job and, and I've done that kind of work. No nobody's ever given me a standing ovation after I've kicked out an awesome report at at a day job, right? But a musician, people will do that for. Yeah, and that will drive people to want to keep doing that. But the amount of work that they do, right? I mean, by the time you get there at nine o'clock. You know, to see that opening band, you know, they've driven 12 hours today. They've unloaded all of their gear out of a van. They've checked into a crappy motel. Maybe they've eaten something. Maybe they haven't. Yeah. You know, and now they're going to spend the next four hours playing their guts out for you. Then they're going to pack it all up. They're going to sleep with one eye open at that motel because who knows what's going to happen. Right. And then they're going to hit the road in the morning and do it all over again. Yeah. You know, but my day job is only eight hours. I go home. I sleep. I get a nice meal. I watch a Law and Order re rerun, and uh, you know, and then I go do it again the next day. Yeah. But this—that's nothing compared to what this artist is, uh, what your average artist is doing. And then they're doing it. You know, five ten dollars at the door, twenty dollars at the door. It's still minimum wage. They're on the road for three days before they get here. Yeah. You know, so the sacrifice I think that a lot of artists make uh, is is worthy of respect. And so wh whatever I can do. Uh, with the resources that I have to keep encouraging that, right? I mean, the world is better with art. Yeah. And uh, it's it's my job. I found myself in this position to where I don't play guitar like Buddy Guy. I don't play a harmonica like James Cotton. I wouldn't know what to do with myself if I did, you know? If I could play like that, I'd be like, it would always be like the first day at a nudist camp for me. I mean, I would have no idea what to do with myself, yeah, you know, yeah. because I would just be like, holy crap, I can play like Buddy Guy, you know. Um, and I don't think I should. I don't know if that's a good use of my energy to go chasing after Buddy Guy because Buddy Guy is Buddy Guy. Right. Because he is Buddy Guy. I'm not Buddy Guy. He's Buddy Guy. Yeah. I'm never going to be Buddy Guy. I'm never going to be close to Buddy Guy. Even if I learn every note, I might be Buddy Kai. 
but I won't be putting <laughs> it up. You know, it's still not close enough. Maybe you if, you, if you ever have to start a new radio show, <laughs> you can go and you can be Buddy Kai. <laughs> so I, I think uh, for me, you know, what, what is it that I can bring to the table to, to help make this stuff work? And, and this is what I can do. I can, I can uh, play it on the radio. I can uh, put festivals together. I can convince other people to put festivals together. Um, I can set the stage for the magic to happen. I mean, you know, if, if I, if I, uh, uh, if I go back to my philosophy days, right, and I and I quote Aristotle from like the Nicomachean Ethics or something. He begins that with, with a statement that uh, the good is that at which all things aim, right. So all things inherently want to be good. Uh, and he bases his ethics on how well things are allowed to flourish. And so to me, a good life is a life that is uh, filled with uh, flourishment. And it's my job to help that flourishment occur. Yeah. And uh, whatever I can do to make that life flourish is, is what I need to be doing. That's and, awesome. And that helps with, with me too. Obviously, yeah. I want to hear good blues. I mean, you know, that's that's my dog in the in the game is I want to hear good blues. And I'm yeah. and I'm willing to help make sure that more good blues is created from each generation. And you know, I find myself when I was nineteen years old, everybody said, You don't know no blues. You're nineteen. What do you know? How many times have you seen Muddy Waters? I never saw Muddy Waters. Oh, well, what do you know, kid? I don't know shit, you know. But I know I like it, and I want—I want to keep doing it. I want to keep finding a way to make it happen, right? You know, and so now I'm the old guy, right? And so, so now people are looking to me, saying, "Well, you know, Kai, what do you think?" And I go, "Well, I, you know, I'm—I I'm, still don't know shit. You know, it's—it's it's sort of it, it either talks to you or, or or it doesn't. And I know I just want to keep doing it, and I want to keep each generation interested in it. And you see all the young people. And I think one of the reasons why we have so many young people that have gravitated toward this music at such a high level is I think some a lot of the people who are my age now have rather than thumbed our noses at people who are trying to find credibility to it, we've gone out of our way to open doors to make sure that they can continue on that journey. Right. Uh, and that's that's all I can do. I I wanted to. Well, first off, that's awesome. You know, you've you've well, really you. committed your life to it, and and uh, you're doing all kinds of great things. Well, my life has gone by, regardless. Yeah, I never yeah. intended for my life to go by. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to I wanted to ask about we we chatted at the Nick Moss show briefly. Yeah. Um, and one of the young artists that you helped out early on in their career was Anders Osborne. Yeah. And I'm a huge Anders fan. Well, of course you uh, are. You have good taste, my friend. Yeah. yeah. Heck yeah. Um, it, it, tell us about that a little bit. Uh, your interactions with him. Well, I mean, Anders, I think, has, has always been on his way. I think Anders is a, an amazing talent. I, I, I mean, I really think he's a, he's a treasure in, in terms of what he brings us as a, as a musician, as a, as a songwriter, as a storyteller, as an interpreter of music. Yeah. Uh, I, I think he embodies all of those things. And I think because it's, it's such a sort of... Uh, a deep richness that he embodies, that it's hard for us to necessarily uh, take it all in when he gives it to us. And I, back then, uh, it was an exciting time back then. He had just been signed to a national uh, record label. Was uh, that okay? Which was okay. Mm. Uh, before that, he was, he was doing some stuff, I think, on Rabidash records yeah and i already knew of anders because john magney lived in fort collins at that time he still might and he's a founding member of a band called the sub dudes yeah the sub dudes is an awesome band still one of my favorite bands today and uh and they had that new orleans connection so there are a couple guys you know john and steve amade came from fort collins and then uh you know uh, uh dave and tommy yeah they they came from new orleans and and sort of all blended together and uh, it was a big. They were signed to Atlantic in '89, right? That was a big deal, even out of Fort Collins, you know, yeah. Atlantic Records. Um, but so I, I had some familiarity with with Anders, and uh, when he got signed to OK, I was I was kind of excited because I knew we would start getting some access to him, and he started coming out to our neck of the woods, and uh, 
you know, Anders had a real tough time early on in his career building that draw. Yeah. Just sort of getting there. And I think a lot of it maybe was self-inflicted on, on his behalf, obviously. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's made no secret about his sobriety right now. Um, and, uh, you know, we were both in that sort of stage at that time where we all kind of engaged in, in some of that stuff. And uh, it's not it's not an easy thing to get away from. And, you know, the harder thing is getting away from the people, too. I mean, it's a when, when you come out of that type of lifestyle, uh, it's a it's a complete reset. Yeah. You know, it's a complete reset. And it took Anders a long time to uh, to be able to do that. Uh, but I had him in the studio. You know, he would come into the studio and we would do shows down there at Linden's with him. And, and uh, it was my goal then. I said, I'm going to play Anders as much as I can because uh, this is a guy people need to hear. Yeah. You know, and I'm happy I stayed on him for 20 years. And I'm and I'm happy that he's doing well now as an artist. In a way, it sort of validates what my belief in him was. You right. Know, the timing was way off. You know, I mean, if it was, if it had been up to me, uh, I'd have played him every day. But I wasn't on every day. Yeah. And uh, and so and, and of course I advocated for him everywhere I could go. I tried right. to get him on festivals, which I did out here quite a bit. Uh, get them into the clubs, talk to club owners into bringing them, and so on and so forth. And, you know, I would offer free support. I would say, look, don't worry about buying ads to, to do this. I mean, commercial radio lives off advertising, you know. Right. But I would say, listen, don't worry about that with Anders. We're just, we're just going to do everything we can to get the word out about this, you know. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what I believed. I believed that he was a great artist worth listening to and that he should be supported. Wow. And, uh you know, and so you never knew which Anders you were going to get, right? You know, sometimes you're going to get melancholy Anders. Sometimes you were going to get acid rock Anders. Sometimes you're going to get didn't show up Anders, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, th and that's fine. But, uh, that, you know, that's all part of it. That's all part of his story. That's what makes him so special. Yeah. And uh, he's just a wonderfully honest guy. He's a wonderfully honest interpreter of music. Yeah. And I don't really care that he doesn't think he's a blues artist. Because when I hear Anders, I hear soul. I hear honesty in his music. And that's where blues comes from, right? That's the old line from Willie Dixon, right? Blues is truth. Yeah. You know? Dr. Martin Luther King called it a triumphant music, you know? And it, it's, it's all true. It's, this is music about overcoming odds, overcoming adversities, and still finding a way to um, move forward with it, you know? Like, uh, you know, a country song, you might... Your woman might leave you, your truck might get stolen, your dog's gonna leave you, and that's where it ends, right? But in a right. blue but in a blues song, you load a shotgun and you go get her back, you yeah. know. And you know, I, I sent my baby a brand new twenty dollar bill. If that don't bring her back, this old shotgun will. Yeah. You know, and yeah. that's that's what that's the blues, man. That's yeah, we got we we got some shit, but we're gonna take care of it too. And so Andrew's always there's always that sense of resolution with, with Anders, right? So he never finished a piece where you're like, oh, my God, you know, what's going to happen to Anders? He always felt like, you know, Anders is going through a tough time, but he's going to land on his feet. Right. You know, you know, like Katrina whooped his ass, but, you know, he, he's got the right attitude about it. You know, yeah. I can tell from this song, you know, yeah. the way he rewrites Louisiana Rain or, or, you know, the whole album he did about Katrina I thought was just fantastic. Well, Kai, thanks for sharing your knowledge and talking to me for the last hour or so. I sure appreciate it. Hey, well, thank you. This is a nice treat. Uh, you know, it's it's an honor to be on your show. Thank you very much. Well, well, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Absolutely. You know, I've done several interviews for this podcast now, and Kai is one of those people that I think I want to hang out with again. I think I just want to call him up and say, hey, man, you only live 10 minutes from me. Can I, Can I just come over and maybe we can smoke cigar and listen to some records. Wouldn't that be cool? He actually sent me off with a live Jimi Hendrix CD as well as a Bobby Rush CD that I've got sitting in the car. Well, I've got to head down and uh, do my third night of my residency here at Al's Den at the Crystal Hotel in Portland. So I'm out for now. Uh, we'll see you in two weeks with Portia Sabin. If you liked the episode, please rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
It's greatly appreciated. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or otherwise, you can email me directly at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. I also want to give a quick shout-out to our sponsor, PQ Mastering. Patrick at PQ Mastering out of Las Vegas, Nevada, puts the finishing touches on this podcast. For any of your audio or restoration needs, you can find out more information at his website, www.pqmastering.com. All right, that's all I got for this week. We'll talk to you later. Thanks.